Good morning, good morning, good morning. Glad you guys are here. So neat to see your faces. Man, this is my favorite part of my week. I pray, I prepare, I think about you, I, I worry about you, I dream about you, and then uh, finally on Sundays I get to see most of your faces. So welcome, glad to see your face. Those of you that are online, uh, I'll just continue to imagine your faces. And so, but glad you're joining us as well. Uh, how about we say hi to everyone online that is here? How about everybody? Hiya, 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 hiya. All right, so uh, ready for our shouts. What do we do? We love God and we love others. And what do we say? I love God and I love you. Man, we are here today on our fifth Sunday of Colossians. We've been working under this umbrella idea of the truth of Christ. So if you read Colossians on your own, that's the, the phrase that should be jumping out. It's always about Christ, Christ, Christ. And we just finished with that song. It's your name, Jesus, that is powerful. It is your name above all other names. And that's the key theme uh, that we've been seeing in Colossians. Last week, we saw how a life in Christ will uh, change how we navigate relationships just generally with people. And there was a, there was a list of uh, positive attributes that the Holy Spirit will draw out of us as we uh, put Christ first. Things like uh, generosity and compassion, kindness, humility. Uh, there was patience and forgiveness. And, and he said, above all that, put on love. If we remember the, the love jacket, no jackets today, just regular clothes. And um, but so those were all these like interpersonal relationship benefits that come from following Christ. Uh, things that just generally work for everyone, whether it's coworkers or, or people in the, the supermarket line and, and just kind of this general way uh, that we navigate interpersonal relationships as we follow Christ. And then Paul in the next section goes into this uh, section where he talks about some really specific relationships. So this general sort of like uh, when you interact with people, be generous and have humility and, and uh, you know, be gentle with people and be patient, that sort of stuff. And he says there are a couple of particular types of relationships that you have to pay particular attention to. And he highlights them. And so we're going to look at three of those today over this next section. Three incredibly specific relationship, uh, relationships in life. And I will say three relational coins. Uh, if you will. So here's the first, and I know you're going to love this verse. This is Colossians 3.18. It's pretty famous. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Boom! That is the way to start a sermon, especially in 2021. That normally gets everyone really excited and comfortable. Half the church is not alienated at all. Everybody is excited to hear me talk about this. Uh, there's going to be no tension as we talk about this verse because it's fantastic. Wives, submit yourselves to the Lord. Babe, go get me a beer. You know, whatever this kind of thing jumps into your mind immediately. And I know that this is one of the greatest landmine verses uh, in our generation, probably. I don't know if it has always been that way, but currently, this is a, a cringe verse for most folks. This is one that uh, non-believers love to throw back, like, oh, what are you, a part of that, those weird cults where you say, submit, wife, you know, and she has to wear the Amish dress and you know, bake shoe fly pie, I don't know what she has to bake, like something, right? Like, and, and so this, this verse is uh, problematic for a lot of people, uh, increased uh, focus in, in our day and age about equality and, and uh, women's rights. Uh, so this becomes, this verse has become uh, especially unfashionable. Um, if not downright, uh, um, unliked. <laughs> Nobody's doing a ton of devotions on, on this particular verse. But, but I don't think it has to be that way. 
I think there's only one problem with the verse. Right? There's only one part that causes you any angst. Do you mind if God speaks to you women as a wife? No, I don't mind, right? Does, do you mind getting wisdom from God on, on how to have a good relationship with your husband? No, that'd be fantastic. So what's the only part of this verse that anyone has any issue over? It's submit, right? Submits, oh, come on now. Because this has probably been used negatively in, in people's lives. Submit as in, do what I tell you to do. Submit as in, I'm the boss, you're not the boss. This kind of idea. But I think that the way to alleviate the stress or the pain of the verse isn't to discard it, but rather try to understand what Paul means and what God wants to convey by using this specific term. And so let me tell you about the term submit, because that's the problem here. It's the submit term. First of all, I want to tell you that this, I'll tell you two key ideas about the term. First of all, this term is used to tell Jesus how to act. This term is used in reference to Jesus himself. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, the Bible says that Jesus is submits himself. So here we said, submit yourself. Women, submit yourself to your husband. The Bible says Jesus himself submits himself to God the Father. And by doing so, that in no way makes Jesus less. It does not diminish him. It does not lower him. It does not make him unimportant. It does not make him cease to be God. He does not become a lesser member of the Trinity. When Jesus chooses to submit himself to the will of the Father, it does not cause anything negative at all. It, in fact, causes something beautiful, the salvation of the entire world. Jesus says, I'm willing, Father, to go do something that's incredibly difficult. I'll do it. And he submits to the Father. And so somehow we've got this really negative view of this. Submit isn't meant to be negative any more than the next word. In the next passage, you're probably familiar with it, husbands love your wives. That's not meant to be negative either. Neither term is supposed to be negative, but it has become negative in, in, because it's become this... Uh, uh, wrongly thought about term, as if submission were somehow bad, or as if uh, th this word submit means the other person tells you what to do because they're better than you, or because they have power over you, or any of those kind of dynamics. That is not the case in the Trinity. When Jesus submits himself to the Father, he doesn't become less diminished, negative, nothing like that. None of the negatives that we, that we attach to this idea are involved with Jesus, and so none of those negatives ought to be attached to a person who is willing to submit themselves in this situation. The second thing I want to talk about is, I think the first thing is the most important, because if Christ does it, and in this verse, then women's get to be like Christ, or wives get to be like Christ. You say, mm, sounds like you're equivocating a little, I'm not really that happy. And so let's really talk about technically what this word means. Submit is, comes from this uh, compound word. The compound word in Greek is uh, hupotassos. So this means, hupo means like uh, under, and tasso uh, means to set in place. And so it's often used as a military term where, where the uh, commander sets in place different troops. But it means to set in place under. So military arrangements sometimes, sometimes it talks about hierarchy, uh, but, but I think that it's 
easiest and best to understand it in an architecture sense. So, so I have this uh, picture right up here. Uh, many of you probably have uh, come, come by this. Anyone drive this morning? Yep, that's uh, this morning's drive. I went from the 5 to the 55, and you saw that big overpass they created. I don't know if you've driven up over that overpass. That thing's scary. You look over the side, you're like, oh, don't, don't like swerve, don't crash. You get a little nervous. My hands get sweaty as I drive over that overpass a little bit. But I'll tell you, this overpass has some really powerful things involved with this. This, power, uh, this, this uh, overpass has submission involved in it. And the things that are submitting is the pillars that are holding it up. You see, those pillars are placed on purpose under for the purpose of holding up. And that's what this idea has in mind in submit. It has the idea of under set in place. So God's saying to wives, I need you to, to be set in place to hold something up. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't mind if the road is a little rough. I don't mind if the side is a little rough. I really do mind if those pillars are a little rough. The big problem is if that pillar breaks, right? I don't care if the lines are squiggly. I don't care if there's dirt on the road part. The road part is mildly relevant compared to the pillar part. The pillar part is critically important. I would say it's actually more important than the thing that's sitting on top of it. What do I want to be structurally sound? I really want the pillars to be structurally sound because they, had, they have a job and a duty, and that is to hold the whole thing together, to hold it up. Now, that position is not a position of weakness, but rather strength. It's not, uh, it's not toss away, it's value. And in fact, I think it's probably greater strength than the more glamorous road itself. I, I, quite honestly, I think that this command is given to wives, not for the benefit of the wives. So you've got to hear that, women. And I know it's weird if some guy's talking about this, but I'm just trying to say what the Bible says. The command isn't to wives for the wives' benefit. The command is given to wives for the husband's benefit. You see, when we look at these relationships, what we're going to look about is, is how they value the other person, not how they value me. So this command is for, to the wife, but for the husband, right? It's for the value of the husband because it fills the greatest need that God creates in man. Men almost universally have this need uh, to feel supported, to feel respected. Maybe their second greatest need maybe is perhaps something like sex, but, uh, but this is the greatest internal need of men. Men have a keen deed to feel supported. A very close word of that is respect. In my interactions with husbands, outside of something catastrophic like uh, some disease or, or marital unfaithfulness, this idea is the thing that causes the most trouble in the marriages that we counsel. This idea that, that the husband feels unsupported. Un disrespected, and, and that his wife isn't behind him completely. And that's just simply how God created men to be. There's probably a thousand psychological studies as to why, but it's just a reality about men. And God created a men this way, and, and when this doesn't happen, almost universally there are marriage problems. When, when, a, when a husband doesn't feel supported by his wife, 
when he doesn't feel like she's behind him 100%. It will almost always fracture a marriage relationship. Positive phrases are like, when people talk about their wife being supported, they say like, she's my ride or die. I don't know if you guys use that one a lot, right? You use ride or die wife. No. Oh, she's my rock. How about that? Behind every good man is a great woman. These are popular phrases because they're true. There is no way your husband can function rightly in his marriage relationship and probably not in his life unless you are helping him do this. Remember, this verse is not for you. It's for him. It's to you so that you can empower him to be the greatest person that God created him to be. Ladies, if your husband feels this, it, uh, truly deeply inside of him, that this is, he knows that you are absolutely like, he may be shaky, the shaky road, but he knows that pillar is strong. There is nothing that he won't do for you. There is no mountain he won't climb. Wars are started over this. He'll clean the bathroom. He'll take out the garbage. He'll die for you. He'll care for you. He'll, he'll walk 500 miles Whatever. He'll do anything for you if this part is true. And I don't want to say the flip side, but the flip side of that is he probably won't if it isn't. He probably won't take out the garbage and he probably won't finish those things. And he may be having other issues if you can't help him in this one. And so God says to women, hey, your men need your support. They cannot function without you. And there's no one else on the planet strong enough to ask this of. So you know what? I'm going to ask it of you. Would you be the pillar behind your husband, holding him up, the strength that he absolutely needs? That's the sense of the verse. And wives, you've got to decide if you're going to be that or not. That's up to you. Husbands, that's not for you to tell your wife, see, I told you. No, it's not your verse. That's her verse. You get a verse in a second, but that's hers. So you don't get to say, told you. Wife, look at this. None of that. It's up to her to deal with this verse. Here's one for you. Here's the flip side of the coin. I said we had three relational coins. The marriage one is the first one. That's the wife's side. Here's the husband's side. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. You see, this, this command hits to the greatest need of women. It's not for your benefit, men. It's for her benefit. It's for your wife's benefit. God created inside women this deep need for love, and, and it doesn't matter anything else. If they have this piece satisfied, the whole rest can be a mess. If she thinks you love her and she is sure of it inside, she, it don't matter if you're broke. It don't matter if your car doesn't run. It doesn't matter even if the garbage is still there and she told you three times. That may bug a little bit, but if she knows absolutely you love her at her core, it'll be all good. Fellas, if your wife is convinced that you love her more than anyone or anything, then she'll do anything and she'll go anywhere with you. I, I, my wife and I have talked about this. She knows how much I love her. I've demonstrated it for many, many years, even when she wouldn't date me. Um, and so uh, it's clear. So if I told my wife, 
if I said, hey, babe, uh, we're packing up tomorrow and we're moving to the Amazon jungle. My wife hates bugs and, and heat and humidity and her hair gets frizzy a little bit. And, you know, like, and if I said, God's asked us to do this, we're moving. And, and I, I need you to follow me. She'd be like, all right. But why? Because I'm so smart? Mm-mm. Because I'm so good looking? Mm-mm. Because she knows I absolutely love her to the very core of her. And so she knows I always have her best interest in mind. So your ability to follow this commandment opens up her ability to follow the first command. See, if if I'm willing to love my wife so much that she is absolutely convinced of it, then she has no problem supporting me. She has no problem being behind me 100%. And then you need to express this verbally and, and in written form and in actions. I don't care if you're not comfortable with love stuff. I don't care if you're not comfortable with sappy things. This verse isn't for your benefit. This one's for her benefit. So I don't care if you don't like that kind of stuff. It's not about you. It's about being what you need to be for her. I'll tell you, number one, you are not manly if you don't do this. Ooh, fighting words, right? You are completely unmanly if you won't show your wife love. If you won't tell it to her, if you won't talk about it, if you won't write it, if you won't demonstrate it, find out, read a love language book, that uh, five love languages, do them all, I always say, because... It's not true. Women don't have one love language. They have five of five. They, they are not mad if you do all of them. They, how dare you love me with gifts? <laughs> I'm even my number one. Nope, they take them and they're happy. It's a primary command given to you husbands in the Bible. More than provide for, more than protect, more than anything else. This is God's command to you. It's in multiple places. To love your wife. It's essential for your wife's well-being that you hear the Bible on this, that, that if, if you have not been doing it, that you begin it today. Maybe, remember last week we talked about you're used to, you're used to self not to, you used to not say love words, but, but today you do. You used to not write love notes, but today you do. You used to not write bad poetry, but now today you write some bad poetry. She doesn't care. If you write bad love poetry to your wife, she will frame it in her heart. She'll put it somewhere safe and save it because it's an essential need to her. We all tend to be a little selfish in life. And the beauty of this is if if we each follow the thing God asks us to do, it actually benefits us. So if, if I do the love part, then that helps my wife do the submit part, which makes me feel way better when she does the submit part. And when she does that part, it helps me love her. And that makes her feel well, uh, way better. And so um, it actually helps you, it helps them, and it, and it honors God. It's just one of those like win-win-win situations. So there's absolutely no reason relationally not to do the things God just asked you to do. And it wasn't overly complicated. Some parts in the Bible are. These parts are really simple. So you, we don't have a lot of excuse not to do them other than uh, you're being a punk <laughs> or whatever. You don't want a good marriage, but everyone who's married wants a good marriage. And so there you go. That's our first relational coin. Our next relational coin talks about another close relationship. And I know not everybody in here has this one, but this is talking about parents, uh, kids and parents. 
Colossians 3.20 says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And parents are like, boom, favorite verse. Dad just said it. He's like, I didn't like that last verse, but this verse, this is what I'm talking about. This is my verse. Kids, look at the verse again. Kids, obey your parents. But like the marriage verse, guess what? This is not your verse, parents. This verse is not for you. But I love this verse. You want this verse to be true, but this is not your verse. So parents, if you're sitting here and you're a parent, you don't have to listen right now. Close your ears. Do one of that. I'm not listening. Like there's bad words going on. This is not your verse. Children, this is your verse. In the Old Testament, you say, well, how do I know if I'm a child? In the Old Testament, there's probably two ideas. Uh, when the Israelites were leaving uh, out of Egypt, people who were 17 and under weren't considered culpable for the sin of the nation of Israel. So it's perhaps, you're, if you're under 17, you're a child. Or there's an idea of a bar mitzvah you've heard from Jewish culture. At uh, 13, you become, you become an, uh, accountable for your own actions. Uh, and so somewhere between there, I would say, and I think Paul probably has in mind, uh, children are people who are still under their uh, parents' household. So whether you got married or whether you moved out or something, that, perhaps you're not. But, and so we have some children that are in service, I think would consider children. And I think in America, we would say, when, you know, when someone's 18, they become an adult, and that's sort of a cultural thing. And so I think there's a little bit of flex in it. But th- this idea for children, if, if you're in our service right now or you're watching online and you're, you find yourself as a child, uh, I don't think this is the universal. There's an idea where uh, all children, even old adult children, need to honor their parents. I don't think that this is talking about this. This is a household verse. So this is kids that are in the household of their parents. And, and uh, so kids, you have to decide if you want to have a God-honoring relationship with your parents or not. So this is just for our kids. Do you want to have a God-honoring relationship with your parents? And if you do, then obey is your primary responsibility. Now, you have others. You've got to study and do different kind of things. But your primary responsibility in relation to your parents is to obey them. Now, we're talking obey as long as the things aren't sinful. If they ask you to go kill the cat or something, don't do it. You know, that's not right. Uh, unless you live on a farm and it's for good reason or, you know, uh, but, but nothing that's, that's sinful. And the nice part about this, kids, I'll tell you, is life will go easier for you if you do this. Every kid that thinks, you know what's better if I disobey? Disobey never goes well. Disobey always hurts you. It never hurts them, <laughs> right? Parents taking away stuff, this can, it always hurts you. Like uh, when I was younger, my brother, he didn't, always, he didn't always obey. He was the less obey kind of uh, kid. And he'd argue with my parents, and, and he'd get in trouble, and he'd get in way more trouble because he didn't obey. And I'm watching this, I'm the younger brother, and I watch this, and I'm no dummy. I'm like, uh, that doesn't seem to work. And so I decided to obey my parents. So when they asked me to do something, I'd do it. And you know, I, I did confess that I wasn't always honest. Sometimes I did what they did and then had bonus activities going on, right, that I didn't tell them about. But beside that, uh, life always went better when I obeyed my parents. So, you know, the more I obey, the more they trust me. And then uh, the more they allow me to do the things that I want to do. And so, again, we're always a little bit selfish. This will help your life, children, if you choose to follow it. Just ask permission and you get to go to the thing, no problem. Just obey your parents. And, and, and obey doesn't, it's not obey with attitude, it's just obey. You don't have to obey. <laughs> no, just, just obey. You don't, no noise is needed. No face is needed. You can just obey. And... Uh, and that's God's primary 
in your relationship with your parents, that's what God asks you to do. Tell you to clean your room? Okay, go clean your room. What's it going to take? 10 minutes. The fight that's going to happen when you don't is more than 10 minutes. The trouble that happens because you didn't clean your room is more than it would have, any of the trouble it would have been to clean your room. And so God knows this, and so he says, just obey. Now, uh, I know parents, they were like, well, I don't get that verse. What do I get? Oh, don't worry. God has one for you. There are two sides to this coin as well. The second side is this, Colossians 3.21, which you never tell your kids. So now, kids, you're about to be armed, but you can't throw this in your parents' face. Just text them, Colossians 3.21, whenever you have a problem. They'll love it. That'll actually really help. Probably not, but we'll see. It depends on if they're listening today. Here's parents' verse. This one is for you. Go ahead and take this one. Fathers, and when they're using fathers, they're using it as the universal male, sort of like parents. Don't embitter your children, or they're going to become discouraged. Hmm. Here you go, parents. Here's your verse. I know you wanted to hold on to the last one, but you don't get to. Take this one instead. It's God's commanded necessity that you prevent yourself from being the cause of bitterness in your kid's life. This is your responsibility with your kids, more than feeding, clothing, these kind of other things. He says, you want a God-honoring relationship with your kid, don't make them bitter. Don't make them bitter so they get discouraged. And so here's some tough questions, parents. Does your approach to your teens cause them to become embittered? Does your tone towards them cause them to get embittered? You say, well, no, not their tone toward me. No, this isn't about them. Secret giveaway, kids. Your parents have bad tones too, right? So I know, I just can't say anything. But I can. Does your tone, parents, embitter your kids? Do you bother to listen to your kids? Because the best way to drive them away is not to listen, to assume, to get on them for everything. The only way that you'll ever know that what you're doing is embittering your kid is if you actually listen to them. And you say, no, Pastor Sam, trust me, I talk to my kids. Probably. But you just missed what I said. I didn't say, do you talk to your kids? I said, do you listen to your kids? You don't even listen to me. <laughs> do you listen to your kids? Psh, of course I do. <laughs> I listen to my kids. Yeah, let me ask them that question, and I'll watch their face as I ask the question. Do your parents listen to you? Really listen to you? Don't look at, the, look at my nephew. You have to answer correctly right now, because your mom is looking at you. Do they really? So parents, do you really? Now, I have a lot of confessions. Um, But, but one of my worst confessions is that Hedgen and I have not always done this well. We have loved our kids unquestionably, 100%. They have no doubt that we love them. We have provided amazingly for them with what God has given us. We've taken care of them, protected them, kept them safe. Uh, 
done an amazing job in all sorts of areas. But this is one area as parents that we did not do a great job in. You can ask our older kids. Uh, that's true. We're trying to, we still have one. We have one last try uh, for our freshman daughter. Uh, and so this is actually, I, I normally don't mind confessing things, but this is probably the one that I'm the least happy about confessing. Because I don't mind if I've screwed up my life kind of with my own stupidity and that, that stuff, and I get what I deserve. But, but when my inability to listen to the kids hurt my kids, then that's problematic. And, and because I don't always listen, and my wife and I haven't always listened, we've caused bitterness in our kids. And you're saying, oh, I've seen your kids. They're wonderful. Yep, they are. And they love us so much that they will, they will fake it. And they will say what we want to hear because they love us. But we, we didn't always provide enough space to actually listen, to hear if they were getting bitter, if they were getting discouraged by us. And we didn't do a good job with that. We haven't always taken this verse seriously. I think unintentionally, many of us cripple our kids because there's no space for us to listen. We gotta be right, we gotta tell. We gotta command them to do their verse. <laughs> but I'm not doing my verse. If you've got a bitter teen or a bitter preteen or a discouraged young kid in your household, then you're not doing your verse. And you've got to figure out how to do your verse. It, kids are different. Every kid is different in every way. And so you've got to figure out how to how to not embitter your own children. We gotta take this seriously because it's number one command to parents. There aren't a lot of commands to parents in the Bible. This is it. This is your biggie. So don't screw up the one thing God asked you to do. It's like, I told you to do one thing. I didn't even give you 20. I could have told you 20 things with your kids. I told you one and you screwed it up. Look how bitter all of your teens are. Look how, bit, how, how discouraged your preteens are. So Hedge and I lately have been asking a new set of questions just in the last couple of years. So God's been really training and teaching our, our uh, uh, family. Uh, and, it, and it has to do ar around this central theme here. So we've been asking, is whatever we're arguing with them over, is this issue worth them hating themselves or hating us over? I'm getting mad about a window open when the AC is on. Is that worth how I'm going to come at them for them to not like themselves or not like me? Is it going to cause a stupid window open when the AC's on? Is it going to cause bitterness in my kids, this conversation that I'm about to have with them? Is my behavior as a parent causing them to be bitter? That we're asking this question. Here's the biggest question we've been asking lately before we address our kids. Is this issue worth breaking relationship over. So I've got to talk to them about X, Y, or Z. Is it worth the break of the relationship? How am I going to talk to them over X, Y, or Z? And I've got to be careful to preserve the relationship over whatever issue it is. Nothing, grades are less important than my relationship with my kids. Whether they have a job or they go to college is way less important than my relationship with them. Whether they clean their room or whether they brush their teeth or whether they watch too much TV or, or whether they played too many games, that is less important 
than a relationship with my children? And so we've been asking those kind of questions. So a third type of relationship that Paul, in his time, had to talk about was this next type of relationship. Colossians 3.22 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eyes are on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and with reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that, you're, that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. I mean, this is a super, so you thought, the, you thought the women verse was a weird one. This is a super strange verse in 2021. It just seems wrong and inappropriate where God is telling, it seems that he's condoning slavery. He's telling slaves how to act in the midst of slavery, not to have a rebellion, not to kill the master, nothing like that. It seems as if it's condoning it. But, but it was a needed relationship in Paul's day. This was actually happening, and slaves weren't far away. Slaves were in the homes. So we're talking about specific relationships, husband, wife, parent, child, and there were other people in the home at that time, and that was slaves and masters. And so he's addressing it. Now, many people have attempted to say that this is a modern equivalent of, of uh, a company and a worker, and so uh, then we should work at what we do with all of our heart. And I think that the, there's a principle we can draw from it, but I think it sort of demeans the idea of slavery to say that it's in a modern equivalent, because it's not. Slavery is the absolute worst circumstance a human being can be in. The lack of freedom for a person is the worst place to be. And the crazy part is, is the Bible says, even if you found yourself in the worst possible human circumstance, you work at that thing to honor God. It doesn't matter about the other person. You got to take care of your insides and honor God in the way, even in the, in the most horrific of circumstances of slavery. See, just a few verses ago, Paul had said that in Christ, there's no slave or free. They're both unified in Christ. So Paul doesn't even see slavery as a possibility for God's kingdom people. But that doesn't mean that the master of this slave relationship is a Christian. So he's saying, if you find yourself as a slave in, a, in this situation, as a Christian, honor God even in the worst of that circumstance. Paul is addressing how to navigate this real relationship that existed at that time. It wasn't uncommon. So he wanted to speak about how as a Christian you could navigate the worst of possible life situations. And he says, even in that worst situation, honor God and how you're, irking, uh, how you're working. The person you serve isn't relevant. Honoring Jesus is relevant. It's the truth of Christ. Surely if Jesus could say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing, when these people spit on him, they beat him, and they were ultimately going to crucify him naked in front of everybody and kill him. And he could say to those people, God, forgive them. God, I love them. He says, if you find yourself in the worst human situation, you still need to honor God in how you act in that situation. So I think there is a principle for our time. But I, I want to be careful not to equate it with saying like, yeah, our working relationship is the same as a slave-master relationship. They aren't. But I think there is a principle. Look, if, if a slave in the worst possible working situation can honor God, then certainly you and I can honor God in our working relationships. If God asked them at the worst possible place, in the worst possible situation, to honor Jesus, then you in your 
mildly air conditioning, possibly condescending boss who is maybe a jerk, you should be able to honor God in that situation by working to your best because it's not about that person, it's about Christ even in our situations. He says the flip side of that coin, which is really interesting. Now we, can you imagine hearing this in the first century? Masters, provide your slaves with what's right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Again, Paul's telling people at that time to do what is right and fair. So this is from the master side of that coin. Why didn't Paul tell them to free the slaves? Did he, did he not? What's right and fair to provide for a slave if not their freedom? Just as our master in heaven, the Bible tells us, freed us from sin. A person in this situation, the master, had to heed this verse. Can you imagine how revolutionary this verse is? He didn't just tell the slave how to act. He said, hey, master, you need to act fair and justly towards that slave. And did you not read the six verses ago where I said, in God's kingdom, there's neither slave nor free? Barbarian or Scythian, what are you going to do? And that guy's got to be like, ah, what am I going to do? I'm going to free him because Jesus freed me. For us, the principle may be something like if ever you're in a position of power, you better act right and fair and justly in that position. I mean, that would be the, the possible principle we can draw from this. But I, but I don't want to overdraw principles because this kind of relationship just doesn't exist in our, in our home circumstances. But those might be the principles that I draw from them. And he finishes with this, this whole section. He says, who just talk about those really personal things. He said, but you know what you need to do? You got to devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And husbands, if you're not doing the part that you need to do, and it, it seems hard for you, devote yourself to prayer. Parents, if maybe you're messing up or kids, you haven't been that obedient, devote yourself to prayer. Every Christian I, I, I know would say that prayer is super important and, and if we believe that it's important, it's best that we start doing it then. It's critical that we start doing it. This is like four, there'll be like a, a few ideas and then Paul says pray and then a few more ideas and Paul says pray and then a few more days Paul says pray because it's critically important. Again, what do we say? Devote yourself to prayer and then he says be thankful. It's a, our like fifth section, it ends with being thankful. Da, 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 be thankful. Put Christ at first. Be thankful. In your relationships, get rid of your old self, put on the new self, and be thankful with a heart of gratitude, overflowing with thankfulness. And here, after these relationships start to get mended and you follow Christ in them, then be thankful. And lastly, Paul asks, hey, would you guys just pray for me? He says, pray, pray for us that God would open doors for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So he says, I'm asking for prayer too, Paul says. No person is outside the need of prayer, especially your pastors, your evangelists. Now, this isn't quite as close as your parent and your kid relationship, not as your spouse relationship, but as a Paul pastoring over the church where he says, you are like my spiritual children. And he asked them to pray for him and he'll pray for them. Pray for them to proclaim Christ and do it so clearly that the people in the world might respond and meet this Christ that we're talking about, that we're living our life for. Today's all about close relationships, and I want to ask if you'd just close your eyes with me for a second. 
Would you imagine those people? Man, they've been in your mind right now probably already. And I want to ask that you would specifically just pray for them right now. A few sentences. If you have a spouse, maybe pray for your spouse just by thinking their, their, their face in your mind. If you've got parents or your kids or work folks, however you find yourself, take a few moments right here at the end of service to just pray for those closest relationships. The Bible told us to do it. Now we have an opportunity to do it. And then we get to be used to people. I used to not be that loving to my wife, but as of this Sunday, I am. I used to cause bitterness in my kids, but, but I am no longer that person. And so would you pray over them? Pray over yourself right now. And then we're going to close in a song.